Welcome to the DTB podcast for October 2018, volume 56, number 10. My name is David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, DTB editor-in-chief. Now, in this month's editorial, David, you discuss atrial fibrillation and uh, screening. I was wondering whether you want to go through the sorts of issues that you pick up in this editorial. Yes, our editorial this month looks at or revisits the decision by the UK National Screening Committee. Last time they looked at population screening for people aged 65 and over for AF, they decided against it, and largely on the basis of a lack of evidence for screening for this population. Yes, because let's be clear here, we're not saying that we shouldn't be treating atrial fibrillation as a risk for stroke. We're not saying that the evidence for anticoagulation use is is poor. We're talking about this much more pithier issue about do you actively screen the population for it? Absolutely. And in fact, we make the point that healthcare professionals should do everything they can to ensure that they implement or encourage patients to take treatment for or to consider treatment for the management of, of AF where it's been identified to reduce the risk of, of stroke. Now, this is more about the, the question of population screening, because at the moment we're encouraged to look for people who've got risk factors or comorbidities that make them at higher risk for AF. But there seems to be a general push to broaden this, to, to consider anyone and to screen anyone who might have any form of risk for AF so that we almost by stealth introduce a policy of population screening. Well, this is it. And of course, this is the lighthouse we've been around with breast screening and with prostate cancer screening using the PSA test. So I think clinicians are sort of aware that this can be an issue. And I think what we've really done in editorial is is just highlight that the actual evidence base particularly perhaps in the lower risk group people, is perhaps, you know, it's simply not there at the moment. And it's the same issues as you, as you mentioned with other forms of screening. Uh, the, the unknown effect of reaching out to what might be a lower risk population and the effect of interventions on that population. But also, again, the problem of labelling people who are otherwise healthy, who have isolated bouts of, of AF and what impact it has on them. And we, we highlight the fact that there is a trial about to start which will address many of these issues but of course until we know the answers from that trial uh, it's difficult to see a change to, to national policy. Exactly so at the moment let's just wait and see see how things pan out. Thank you. Now what what are the two articles the reviews we've done this month? Well our first main article discusses the use of opioids in the management of, of chronic pain and do you want to say a little bit about the background to this one? Yeah, so this, I mean, I think you've had to have been somewhere out of the medical loop not to have recognised that the issue of opioids in chronic pain is a a very hot topic at the moment. We're aware, of course, in the USA now, deaths from opioid overdoses now are higher than deaths from road traffic accidents. And I think there's growing evidence which we discuss or which Dr. Kathy Stannard, we're very lucky to have uh, got to to write this for us. Uh, she details the evidence, well, and, and the paucity of evidence behind the use of opioids in the management of chronic pain. 
And in particular, the emerging, as you say, the emerging problem of either inappropriate use or addiction to long-term use of, of opioids and the effect it has on, on people's lives. Well, this is it. And I think, you know, what the evidence shows is that opioids have a number of adverse effects and some are, some are quite, you know, some are quite obvious, the constipation, the drowsiness, the somnolence. But also what we have picked up from evidence is that if you put someone on an opioid, at 12 weeks, they're less likely to be back at work than someone who wasn't put on an opioid for their back pain or for their, their, their pain. So there are other more subtle issues around the use of opioids, which are having an impact on people's lives. And, and particularly with, with chronic pain, we talk about the threshold at which we can be pretty sure that if a patient is taking that level of opioids, that they're probably actually having more side effects than they would be actually benefit. So the benefit risk balance has been tipped very much uh, against the use of opioids. And what Kathy helpfully covers also is issues around trials of, of opioids, um, because we're not saying they're not going to work for everybody, but it is about assessing what response people get to them and being prepared to uh, bring the dose down or stop it where there is no benefit. Absolutely. I think that's probably one of the most useful things about this. I think a lot of articles have discussed the hazards of opioids, but what Cathy has done is actually given a very useful, pragmatic, structured approach to opioid trials. And I think actually also will provide confidence to, to GPs and clinicians to actually say no to increasing the dose or actually having a process at which they can consider withdrawing opioids. So I think it's a really it's a very useful review because it does offer this sort of pragmatic element to it. And also worth pointing out that there is a video that accompanies the article uh, in which we're lucky enough to have a patient talking about his own personal experience of being prescribed opioids to manage a long-term chronic pain problem. Absolutely. This is a, a patient who has done everything right. They went down the, the road of going off to pain clinics and being seen by teams there and it's a, it's a very moving story about his experience of that and yes it's it's well i think it's is freely available on our website so i would i would recommend people have a look it's i think it's a very good introduction to the issue and uh you know they say a, a, a picture paints a thousand words so i don't know how much a video does it's well worth a look that's great thank you and so our final article this month reviews an old product with a new license uh, what's the product and what's changed? Yeah, so here we are, Sildenafil, Viagra is 20 years old, I think, this year, which is which is remarkable, really. And um, what's what we've talked about here is that uh, Sildenafil is moving from a prescription-only medicine to a P medicine. So it means that the market authorization allows pharmacists to uh, sell, in effect, Sildenafil, uh, two patients, obviously, um, ensuring they do this safely. Um, and we just talk about the market authorization around that, what it means, the evidence base, and also some of the things that you might need to know as a GP, which perhaps the most pertinent thing about this is that actually part of the manufacturing or stipulation is that patients should actually make an appointment to see their GP within six months of their first purchase. So there is an element here where you might have yippee, um, perhaps GPs will have less consultations regarding erectile dysfunction, but actually it does look as if there's still a, a feeling that GPs need to be kept in the loop. And it's worth pointing out that this is the 50 milligram strength that is licensed for 
over-the-counter sale and the, the maximum dose is, is one tablet per day. But as you say, the, the key issue is, is the safe and effective selling of this to people who, who may require it. And I think the, the manufacturers provided a checklist for pharmacists to follow to assess whether there are either contraindications or interactions that they need to be aware of. But I suppose, as you say, the big question is, how would it affect workload in primary care? I agree. That's exactly it, I think. You know, I think certainly most clinicians' uh, experience of sildenafil is that it is a safe drug. I must admit, I can't think of any major issues that I've had with it over the last 20 years prescribing it. So I think I think this is a sensible move. I think that was funny, wasn't it? When it first came out, there were lots of concerns that uh, we were going to be uh, tsunamied by people being reckless with it. But I think actually it's demonstrated to actually how sensible people are. And I think this is a, a, a good plan. And I think it'll be interesting to see how it works. And it'll be interesting to see too whether really GPs need, will be involved in the loop or whether patients will be confident and pharmacists will be confident to, to use it without our input. And one interesting sort of byline or, or subplot to this was the, the view from the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency and the hope that by making it more widely available through pharmacies, it might actually limit unauthorised use of websites and other online facilities that, that supply either genuine or maybe even fake sildenafil via mail order. Precisely. I think MHRA quote about £50 million of unlicensed and counterfeit erectile dysfunction medicines have been removed in this way over the last five years. So there has been a, a black market. And as you say, like, like a lot of situations, if you open up the market through a controlled and uh, careful way, that can often be a very good way of uh, spiking the guns of, of the black market. However, the, the big issue, I suppose, is that, you know, these tablets are still going to cost and, and four tablets are going to set you back about £20. So they're not going to be cheap. No, and, and that might perversely drive prescribing back to the NHS. Perhaps this is one we'll have to watch and see what happens. Indeed, indeed. OK, thank you very much. To read these in any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. Thank you.